to me, that's why we have to be talking about bringing wolves back to Ireland. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking to Porik Fogarty. Porik is an ecologist and also the campaigns officer with the Irish Wildlife Trust. The Trust aims to conserve wildlife and the habitats they depend on throughout Ireland, while encouraging a greater understanding and appreciation of the natural world and the need to protect it. Family membership is great value at only 55 euros, including the Irish Wildlife Magazine and the Badger Club Junior Magazine. Porik is also author of the successful nature book, Whittled Away, Ireland's Vanishing Nature. In his book, he issues a provocative call to arms and presents an alternative path to lead us to a brighter future. He calls for the return of long-lost species like wild boar, cranes and wolves, showing how nature and wildlife can recover hand in hand. You can contact Porik through his website, Openfield Ecological Services, and you can find his five-star book, Whittled Away, on Amazon. If you'd like to support the Borough Nature Sanctuary Conservation Projects or find out about animal adoptions, please visit our website, www.boroughnaturesanctuary.ie. Welcome, Porik Fogarty. Hi, Porik. It's lovely to speak to you in Castlenock in Dublin. Um, Hi Mary, nice to, nice to talk to you too. Yeah, across the country. Um, so you're an environmentalist and you're, you're still managing to keep up with your work in some kind of form at the moment, is that right? Yeah, I suppose a lot of our work is uh, policy-based. I mean, a lot of our work is also based on uh, uh, communications and awareness raising. So, yeah, but missing the outdoors and missing the spring uh, to some extent as well. Yes, I bet. So that would be your role in the Irish Wildlife Trust and also as a conservation ecologist. So I'm an, I'm an ecologist, um, and uh, sometimes I get paid for, for being an ecologist, and, um, and then for the Irish Wildlife Trust, I'm our campaigns officer, so I suppose that means, you know, working on the big campaigns that we have, the big changes that we'd like to see happen in Ireland uh, for wildlife, and uh, I'm involved in some of their social media work as well, and uh, yeah, that's, that's what I do for the Irish Wildlife Trust. Thank you, that's great. So we'll go to the first question anyway. How did you become a nature lover? Would you like to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I suppose um, it goes back a long way. Uh, I was lucky enough to have grown up near Phoenix Park in Dublin. And uh, I mean, I wasn't really allowed to wander around the Phoenix Park on my own, but uh, I did it anyway and did it, you know, snuck down with friends. And uh, and I mean, you know, when you're when you're five or six, well, a little bit older than that, maybe more like like maybe eight, nine, ten. The Phoenix Park was enormous. I mean, it's still pretty good, pretty big, but you know, it's uh, at that age, it really was an enormous wilderness, and it has some great wild areas. I remember at the time also it had um, a nature trail through the Furry Glen. I remember my mother bringing me down uh, to the nature trail, and you'd pick up a map from from the visitor centre that doesn't exist anymore, and um, you know, you'd, they'd have things to find on it. You'd be looking for, you know, uh, uh, cones that had been eaten by squirrels or whatever, mushrooms or whatever. But I really enjoyed doing that. And I had a teacher at the time as well when I was, I think it was fourth class, who was absolutely obsessed with nature. And, 
you know, she made sure we grew up knowing the names of trees and animals and plants and poems and all that kind of stuff. So I suppose since then I was hooked. Brilliant. So what's your favorite plant or animal? Have you something you could pick out in particular you'd like to talk about? I've always been fascinated with whales and uh, humpback whales in particular. I suppose they, they, for, well, for a number of reasons. I mean, they're, they're beautiful animals. They, uh, they travel such long distances and I've, I've always been, a, a, always loved traveling. So I've always kind of imagined if I, if I had to be another animal, I'd be a, I'd be a, a humpback whale, you know, going to the Arctic in the summertime and, and then traveling down through the oceans to the tropics uh, in the wintertime, you know, it sounds like a, a wonderful life. And then, um, I mean, whales are such a, a a metaphor for our own destruction. You know, one one of my favorite books is Moby Dick, and you know the the the, the obsession with killing off the great whales is in many ways a metaphor for our entire relationship with the planet. But uh, I've never been lucky enough to see a humpback whale. I have been uh, uh, on whaling trips in Ireland. I've been down to West Cork, where you can see minke whales and fin whales and dolphins, but. Uh, but it's still on my wish list to see a humpback whale in the wild. Oh, yeah, that's a wonderful animal. And where would you see a humpback whale? Well, I mean, they do turn up in Ireland. I think you have to be incredibly lucky. Uh, they're not, uh, you know, because they are migrating. Um, they do they do turn up to feed. I mean, there's been some amazing footage in Ireland where they've been, you know, jumping out of the water and putting on these amazing displays. But uh, but I think you need an enormous uh, uh, helping of good luck to see something like that. Good luck and um, probably a lot of time sitting on a boat waiting for the yes. perfect moment. Yeah, I hope one day you'll see a humpback whale in reality. Um, did you have any moment in your life when you became or felt particularly spiritually connected to nature? Um, I don't know. Um, I mean, I'm not. I'm not particularly religious. I don't. I wouldn't really describe myself as a particularly spiritual person. I do feel uh, a deep sense of connectedness. Uh, maybe that's the same thing. I'm not quite sure. Um, I do feel that we're we're all very much a part of what is going on around us, um, and, uh, and certainly I, I feel that in particular places. It doesn't. I don't have to be off in the wilderness or staring out of the ocean to feel that. You know, I sometimes I enjoy watching. Uh, you know, the spiders and the little blue tits in the back garden sometimes, or the you know the the way things grow. Uh, I have an elder tree in my garden that planted itself and it's, you know, it's an entire ecosystem all by itself. So I do, uh, yeah, I do feel that, that sense of connection with the living world around us. Okay, so for, I know you've written the brilliant book Whittled Away um, and I'll put the link in the, the show notes. Uh, it's a very successful book about the abundance of nature in Ireland and you know, what we have lost in the last even 30 years. Um, are there any positive actions you can suggest to people that they can do as individuals uh, without being feeling overwhelmed by this whole problem that people could, actions people could take to make a difference? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's a source of great frustration for a lot of people to see what's happening in the world and... Um, to, to maybe feel helpless in the face of, of the, the catastrophe that's happening. Uh, and it can be very overwhelming, you know, even 
you know, I think for, for anybody, and the more you learn about it, maybe at times the more overwhelming it can get. But of course, that sense of uh, powerlessness uh, is not a good thing. Um, because from the other side, we know that humanity can overcome great challenges. Uh, you know, we have done so in the past. And, um, you know, the actions for every individual matter at the end of the day. Um, of course, we can't all be ministers or the heads of government or departments that can make decisions to make these things happen. But we do, uh, we do live in communities. Uh, we do live in a world of connections, not only with nature, but with the people all around us. And we can nurture those connections. We can uh, have conversations about what is happening. That, uh, to me, that is one of the most powerful things you can do, uh, really, is to talk to people uh, around you uh, in an open and respectful way about uh, about these things. Uh, many people don't fully appreciate the, the damage that is happening. Maybe, you know, you can... Uh, you know, broaden out conversations. And lots of communities are doing that. I mean, one of the great things in Ireland, I was a, a judge for the Tidy Towns contest for over 10 years. Um, I spent summers going around Ireland looking at the amazing work that communities are doing. In Ireland, we have extraordinarily strong community networks in Ireland. And um, they, that, that's a huge asset for us. So, I mean, if we can mobilize that kind of community energy at whatever level uh, that is within your ability, then I think we'll really start uh, seeing some changes. I mean, I think one of the reasons I wrote uh, the book was because I didn't feel people really understood the extent to which nature uh, has uh, disappeared from Ireland. And of course, if you don't have that appreciation, you know, it's not going to be on your list to do anything about it. So really, that's why I felt, you know, I mean, people have been sitting for years, you know, you can't be negative all the time and delivering bad news. But at the same time, if you don't have a, have a, a picture of the full extent of the bad news or the damage, you're not going to be motivated to act proportionately to it. So, I mean, I hope... Um, my book wasn't so much bad news that people felt there was nothing that could be done because there's an awful lot that can be done. And, uh, and definitely individual action is important uh, at the end of the day. Mm. And in a wider sense, um, if you'd like to give us a few of the sad statistics first from the book, and then I know you looked at more a more worldwide view where other countries had done some successful actions that possibly we as a country could um, mimic. Uh, so what, what are the few statistics that you can throw at us just to wake people up, I suppose? Yeah, so I mean, you could imagine, and I mean, we all learned this in school that, you know, Ireland was once covered in an oak forest, you know, and uh, I think, you know, some people have worked out that maybe up to 80% of Ireland was covered in this dense, deciduous uh, woodland with oaks and ash and yew trees. But today, only maybe one and a half percent of Ireland uh, has fragments of these woodlands remaining. I mean, that makes Ireland one of the most deforested countries in the world. And uh, so it's striking when, you know, we see, uh, you know, the Amazon on fire or deforestation in Southeast Asia and people are horrified. But actually, you know, we should, the horror should be much closer to home 
uh, when we see uh, uh, that kind of uh, damage that has already occurred. Of course, the, the, the remaining part of Ireland, the bit that wasn't in forest, was uh, wetlands and bogs, uh, particularly let's say, along the River Shannon or the west of Ireland. But like uh, less than 1% of our raised bogs are left intact. So, I mean, they've pretty much been wiped out by turf cutting and burning and agricultural practices and the and the peat mining that has been uh, taking place by Bordemona since the 1950s. And of course our farmland, I mean uh, up to up to 100 years ago, uh, pollution from farms didn't exist. Our, the farmers' fields were full of plants and insects and ground nesting birds like quail and corncrake and curlew, and they're all gone. They're literally, you go into a farmer's field today and you might see one type of grass. Maybe you'll see some clover, but you won't see the insects. You won't find the ground nesting birds. All of those things are gone. And of course, the, the, um, the tragedy is what's been called this shifting baseline, this term that was coined by a fisheries scientist uh, to describe how we look at the scenery and we think it's green and it's lush and it's full of nature uh, but that because that's what we have grown up being used to and we don't see what isn't there we we can't imagine the sounds that have disappeared um or the sights that have disappeared or the smells that have disappeared and so we think it's all normal and we carry on and of course that's the great danger that we're we're spiraling downwards uh, into this vortex of extinction without even really knowing about it but uh, but the but the statistics are all there to show that we had this great richness and abundance in the past that has been now gone yeah for an example i have a great friend um who's 83 and she came to ireland 40 years ago first and did the drive from Kimbara to Doolan. And the fields of wildflowers and orchids, and I know the burn is still special for botany, but the difference in the hedgerows and the meadows, it's just black and white. You know, we've fields of green now, um, not fields of color, and nobody notices that. Um, On a wider scale, sort of government policy-wise, what, kind, what one action would you could you see Ireland doing to to help now with some of these issues or one or two? Yeah, so really the the problem has uh, has come down to uh, a lack of action at government level. Uh, there's no way of getting around that, and um, so obviously there's a, there's lots that can be done. There's lots that we've already said we would do but haven't done, um, and there's lots we still can do. I would say the number one. Uh, uh, action on my list would be to create a nature conservation agency in Ireland that was able to do its job, uh, that was independent, uh, that was able to present the science, to communicate the science about what's happening, and to be able to come up with advice for farmers, for fishermen, for people, for communities, for people living in towns and cities about what's the best thing that we can be doing. Of course, um, agencies only work if they're listened to. We also need other government departments, other government agencies, uh, community bodies to to actually listen to that advice. I mean, we see with the debate around climate change and and nearer in time, the debate about uh, COVID-19, how... Uh, uh, listening to science, listening to the facts can be difficult at first. Uh, we saw that with, with the outbreak of, of coronavirus. 
But when we do listen to the virus, we do take the science seriously, we can act very quickly. So, uh, so these things can be done. But definitely without a properly funded, functional nature conservation agency in Ireland, uh, you know, the other things that we want to happen can't flow from that. I mean, they talk about this Green Deal, which with 100 billion euros from Europe next year. Um, I'm not sure if that's going to help Ireland in any way. It doesn't seem to be there in black and white yet. Hopefully, maybe there'll be some funding for something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think the problem has never been money. Uh, the, The problem has never been a lack of funding. The problem has been the very deeply ingrained belief that nature doesn't really matter. That, yes, it's nice to have. And of course, every politician likes to say how important nature is and we want to protect our biodiversity and our national parks and all the rest of it. When it comes down to it, they don't mean it. And so when they're presented with a choice between a motorway and protecting a woodland or a housing estate or protecting the freshwater pearl mussel um, or the big decisions about where money should be spent, nature never comes out on top. Mm. And that's why we have laws in place to protect nature. We have, uh, you know, we have funding streams. They've always been there, but they've never been effective because uh, the, that, that central belief that nature doesn't matter is so deeply ingrained. And I don't want to be overcritical of politicians because it's ingrained in all of us. We've grown up believing that economic growth is more important than protecting curlews or protecting bees or protecting fish in the sea. And that is what has led us on this uh, awful death spiral that we find ourselves in at the moment. Mm, So it's a question of sort of illustrating to people why it is valuable. I mean, do you remember Eddie Lenehan, the storyteller in Clare? Um, He actually forced the motorway to change course because of a hawthorn tree because it was a fairy tree, but um, he was one per- one person who stood up and made a, f- a big fuss. <laughs> and yeah, so they did divert the motorway, but it's, we need the individuals, I suppose, that are shouting. Yeah, and, and, and if you want to look at uh, success stories in Ireland over the last decades of, you know, where nature did win out, you know, community groups have really been at the forefront. Uh, the burn itself was was saved by uh, by community action. Uh, the time they wanted to build um, a visitor centre at Mullockmore, um, that didn't go ahead. You know, there were huge plans for enormous uh, industrial fish farms in Galway Bay up until quite recently. They were brought to an end by community action. Uh, there were plans to bring in fracking in County Leitrim uh, not that long ago, which had government support. And it was local community action that stopped it. So local community action is absolutely uh, essential. What really needs to happen, and we saw that the borough is a good example of this, success can be hard because, you know, you need certain things to come together. You need the community uh, support. You need the scientific support. Uh, and you need the government support. And you need all those three things for conservation to work properly. And we have lots of examples where one of those things is missing and uh, and, and then you don't get the results that you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the burn is great because we see the scientists and the farmers and the government agencies working together, supporting each other. And that's why the burn is so successful. Mm. And you need uh, individuals... Um 
for instance, Patrick McCormick, there's a, there's a lovely video about saving the Burren and stopping the Mollockmore Visitor Centre. I still actually from the, I think it's from the late 80s, maybe early 90s, I still have a rusty old badge that says, save Mollockmore. Um, but Patrick McCormick is, is in this lovely film. I'll put the link in the show notes, The Silver Branch. And he's really a poet and he's a visionary. He's a farmer. He's just a, a you know, regular farmer. But I think the stories and the creative arts have a place to spread the message. Do you have any nature books that might inspire people that you have liked during your life or that you could recommend for people? Oh, many. There are maybe two in particular that, uh, that I have found very inspiring. One was... Um, Rachel Carson. Now, Rachel Carson is very famous around the world for writing uh, Silent Spring, which, which uh, really kicked off the environmental movement in the United States. But before she was writing uh, about pesticides, she wrote a lot about the ocean. And she wrote the most wonderful book called The Sea Around Us, uh, which is not a particularly big book. But I, I loved it so much because she's such a beautiful writer. And her her writing was very much based in science. So she, I mean, she was an oceanographer, and she was able to communicate the science with a sense of wonder, uh, which I think is such a valuable lesson for us today because we really have to discover that sense of wonder. Of course, Rachel Carson is, I mean, she was hounded. Uh, she grew up uh, in a, in a very male dominated society. Uh, a very, you know, anti-science sentiment grew up around what she was saying. She was absolutely hounded and vilified by the pharmaceutical industry uh, in a way that was very sexist as well as, uh, you know, trying to protect their own economic interests as well. So I do think Rachel Carson still has an awful lot uh, to teach us. Uh, the other book that uh, was, it was a great inspiration for the book that I wrote, uh, uh, a number of years ago, was called The Unnatural History of the Sea uh, by a uh, scientist uh, from England, uh, Callum Roberts. And uh, his book was very influential for me because he, he, he talked about the sea um, going back hundreds of years. He went to the diaries of pirates in the Caribbean uh, going back to the 1400s to look for clues about the absolute incredible abundance of life that lived in the sea uh, over the centuries. And of course, this goes back to what I was talking about, shifting baselines. You know, he was making the point, you know, going back 20, 30 years isn't enough. You know, yes, there were more fish in the sea 30 years ago. But if you go back 100 years ago, the, the stories of fish in the sea uh, are absolutely mind-boggling compared to what they are today. And uh, and I took that as great inspiration. So for my own book, I, I tried to do the same. I went back quite far into, into records. I mean, I found stories from uh, Galway Bay in particular about the absolute teeming shoals of fish uh, and sea life that lived in Galway Bay. The entire community of the Clada in Galway Bay was built up around rowboats, you know, nothing more technologically advanced than that, fishing a huge variety of uh, fish and sea life from within Galway Bay, not, not beyond the Aran Islands. And, uh, and I think that, that those kind of stories really hit home because today, you know, uh, 
you know, you'd be lucky to see any kind of fishing boat in Galway Bay. There's virtually nothing going on from a commercial point of view in Galway Bay. Yeah, and now that the fishing is sort of, um, I'm not sure if it's stopped altogether, but it's definitely wound down from the pandemic. Um, we had three dolphins in the quay in Kinvara the day before yesterday, which has never been seen before by anybody that can remember in the village, uh, which means there must be some food for them there, or maybe there's another reason they came in. But um, I'm really enjoying the book recommendations from this podcast. <laughs> so if you, if you could send us a list of all the other ones that you love, I'll put them on the show notes as well. That'd be really lovely for people. Um, sure, I'd like to do that. Yeah, that would be great. Thank you. Um, if you had a magic wand right now and you could do one thing for nature, what would you do, Porik? Oh, I, I would transform people's relationship with nature. I think we can talk about changing all the laws we like. We can talk about all the money in the world going into conservation. If we don't change our relationship with nature, we're not going to fix the problem we're in at the moment. And what I mean by that is addressing the, the, the feeling that we all seem to have that we're more important as a, as a species than all the other creatures around us. Uh, and we've grown up with this sense of dominion over the natural world. Like we are in charge and we, we allow other species to exist. And of course, we frequently we, we decide we can't allow other, certain other species to exist. This, I mean, there's lots of a good example would be wolves, for instance. For centuries, wolves have been persecuted. Uh, they've been vilified in fairy tales, and we've just been we've just grown up believing that there's just absolutely no way that humans and wolves can live together. It's never us. People can understand that about wolves, but actually, it it's, it, it spans across lots of other types of plants and animals as well. You know, I live in the city where we have uh, a lot of seagulls. And the, the anger some people feel that seagulls are allowed to just fly around and do what they want and, you know, steal bread that I brought to the ponds to feed the ducks. It's outrageous. And so we have to, we should be culling the seagulls because of this. You know, that's really what I'm talking about. It even goes down to plants. Some people get very, very angry at the idea that ragwort uh, can grow on the side of the road and nobody's doing anything about it. And I suppose this is what I'm talking about. We have to find our own place in the web of life, uh, in the, the connectedness with the other things around us. The ragwort and the seagulls and the wolves and everything else have a right to exist. Uh, they have a right uh, to their place on this planet just as, just as much as we do as well. This is not an anti-human uh, point of view. This is about finding our place in harmony with the other things around us. That's a very difficult uh, thing to address because people get very, very emotional about it. But that's, in a way, that, when that emotion comes out, that's exactly the, 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 the point of having this debate and having this argument. And that's why, to me, that's why we have to be talking about bringing wolves back to Ireland because this is, this is why we have to have this debate. It's why we have to talk about not farming in certain areas. I know this is very emotional for people, you know, we've grown up believing that farming is absolutely essential and farming, we have to be farming everywhere, the tops of mountains, islands in the Atlantic Ocean, islands and lakes, 
farming must be done everywhere. And, uh, but it doesn't. And we have to step back and decide, okay, we absolutely need farming, but not everywhere. Uh, we, 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 you know, we need to uh, have working ecosystems with all the species uh, in, in, in some kind of a balance with each other. So if, if, that, if, I, had, if I did have that magic wand, uh, that, that would be my wish. Oh, lovely. I had a magical experience driving up to Dublin last year, going up to the botany uh, I think it was the Botany Conference, and I stopped at traffic lights. And you know when the sky is really metal grey, but the light is underneath it, and the seagulls were... And I, I nearly couldn't move from the lights because it was so magical <laughs> watching the seagulls, which is beautiful. So it is very difficult to make that sort of connection for people. Um, it is, and, and you often see, actually, just on the seagulls, I mean, the seagulls uh, are fed by people. Uh, because you, you I, I frequently see people go down to the Keys in Dublin and they're throwing uh, bread or food for the birds. And obviously that person feels they have a connection and they're getting some pleasure or some joy from doing that. And that, I think that's a wonderful sight. I mean, obviously, you know, animals can be problems, can present problems, uh, uh, plants can present problems. But obviously I think there is a deep need in a lot of us to feel that connection with nature, even if you're in the heart of a very busy and sometimes very polluted city. Yeah, it is. Well, look, thank you very much for um, curing that problem with your wand. <laughs> <laughs> it was brilliant to talk to you today, Corey. Thank you so much for taking the time. And I really recommend the book, Whittled Away, um, just to show everybody, you know, the abundance of wildlife and species in Ireland and, and how we can tackle these things and protect what we have and, you know, work on growing our biodiversity here, which is, which is a very positive thing. So um, thank you very much. And I hope you stay safe and we'll talk to you again. Thank you very much, Mary. My pleasure. Come up to the Borough Nature Sanctuary and have a look around. Thank you for listening to the Nature Magic podcast. Please feel free to get in touch for any reason whatsoever. We would love to hear suggestions as to who you would like to hear speaking on the podcast or any other questions. I will put my email in the show notes. Please visit the Borough Nature Sanctuary website at www.bns.ie and follow us on Facebook and Instagram to find out all about us. We welcome contributions towards our conservation projects and animal adoptions. Links to these can be found on the website shop page. And we also sell some beautiful locally sourced Irish gifts, such as wild Atlantic seaweed baths, avoca rugs, and Irish fairy tales. We have gift cards for entrance when we are open again. All support is greatly appreciated. We will be back next Monday. Stay safe.